Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton, and this is the Multipolarista Podcast. Today I'm joined by a good friend of the show, a Venezuelan journalist named Jesus Rodriguez Espinosa. He is the editor of one of my favorite websites. It's called the Orinoco Tribune. I would highly recommend people checking it out at orinocotribune.com. It is a great resource for coverage of Latin America in English. And Jesus has a lot of translations of Spanish language articles into English that don't get coverage in the English language media. So definitely check out his work. I wanted to bring on Jesus today to get a Venezuelan's perspective on a few issues, but especially I wanted to get his response to the election in Colombia. Now, I have another video and another podcast. It's around 20 minutes. It's shorter about the historic election on June 19th in Colombia. For the first time in Colombia's history, a left-wing candidate won the presidential election. Gustavo Petro will be the next president of Colombia. He is a former guerrilla in a socialist militia. He later put down his arms and he moved kind of toward the center-left politically. He's much more moderate, but he's a progressive. And in the context of Colombia, he's seen as someone who's very radical because Colombia has never had a left-wing government. It has always been right-wing. So if you want to check out the other video slash podcast, you can get a more detailed analysis. I talked about the many problems that Petro will be facing, including the fact that he doesn't have a majority in the Congress, which is still dominated by the right wing. The military has threatened him. Paramilitary groups have threatened him. And in Colombia, every single year, hundreds of social movement activists are killed. In every year, there are nearly 100 massacres. So I talked about all of those uh, issues and I analyze the situation in Colombia in another video. In this video, in this live stream, I am interviewing Jesus to get a Venezuelan Chavista's perspective on it. Jesus supports the leftist Chavista movement and the Bolivarian Revolution. And especially, I wanted to get an idea of what Petro's victory could mean for Colombia's neighbor, Venezuela, and also the region for Latin America as a whole. Of course, Colombia has been a key U.S. proxy waging this hybrid war on Venezuela, launching cross-border attacks, including terrorist attacks in Venezuela, backing the U.S. blockade and sanctions. Colombia still recognizes Juan Guaido, this U.S. coup puppet, as fake president of Venezuela. And Petro, although he has made a lot of ridiculous comments condemning Venezuela and Nicaragua, Petro has also promised to normalize relations with Venezuela, recognizing the only real constitutional president of Venezuela, Nicolás Maduro. So without further ado, uh, Jesus, what do you think about Gustavo Petro's victory in Colombia? What is your perspective as a Venezuelan and a Chavista? Uh, I believe, as you say, that is, I mean, we are excited. I, I, I sleep nice yesterday thinking that Petro... Uh, won the elections in Colombia. But as, as you said, I mean, one has to be uh, careful with the level of leftism uh, that uh, Petro will exercise now being president. Because one scene is being in the opposition, being a, you know, a, a politician, a senator uh, opposing the... Um, 
right-wing governments in Colombia, but the other thing is like to be a uh, president and try to fulfill uh, what he promised for several years. So, so that's going to be the hard part, especially in a country black with violence, as you said, with uh, paramilitary, with military uh, uh, caste controlling the country with the U.S., uh, you know, all over uh, the country uh, trying to use it, uh, because I believe that's the main objective of U.S. foreign policy towards Colombia is basically to use it as a source of drugs and then also to use it as a beachhead for their, I mean, Washington's warmongering policies towards the region and disruption policies towards the left in the region. So... Um, I believe that that that, that Petro is going to have to deal with that, and uh, and uh, and yesterday I was, you know, participating in a live broadcast with people from the Alliance for Global Justice, and I asked James Jordan, which is uh, one of their members that is more active in Colombia, I asked him about uh, what he believed under these circumstances would be the the first step that that Petro should take, and he told me that. He, that, that under these circumstances, uh, uh, the first thing that Petro should do is try to rebuild uh, the peace agreements, to resume them, to to try to um, you know approach and comply with everything that was agreed under the peace agreement signed in 2016 between the FARC uh, and and the Colombian government. That was during the time of uh, of um, the previous president. I forgot his name. The owner of uh, El Tiempo. Mm, I don't remember his name, but anyway. Pastrana. Uh, no, no. The other guy, they, they actually the guy that proposed Ivan Duque, but then break with him. Santos. Uh, exactly, Juan Manuel Santos. Santos. Juan Manuel Santos. Yes. So, uh, so, so I believe that that's uh, a nice uh, approach towards the, you know, towards the, the, you know, how what to do on the Colombians' reality. I mean. Uh, Trying to trying to comply with the peace agreement signed in 2016 seems to be like the the, the, the the easiest way to advance in his agenda. But as you say, he's gonna have to deal with a lot of you know uh countercurrents. I mean uh, uh, not having control of over the over the Congress will means that he's gonna be forced to to reach alliances with right-wing forces, because I believe that leftist forces outside Pacto Historico, which is his, you know, political group party, uh, uh, won't allow him to have a uh, fifty percent of the of the nation, of the Congress in Colombia. So I believe that uh, many analysts also believe that that he's going to be forced to to reach agreements with some people in the center. Even some people say that he will reach agreements with some people from the right. But anyway, we will we need to see what's going to happen in that sense. But we are happy. We're happy. We believe that uh, that that uh, at least having I see Gustavo Petro as a center or maybe center left, maybe uh, politicians. He's very uh, 
seen in Colombia already, this, it, despite the criticism from, from the right-wingers that say that he's a guerrilla man and that he's a communist and blah, blah, blah. He's seen by many, um, most part of Colombian society as a traditional politician. He, this was his third attempt to run running as, you know, a presidential candidate. And, 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 and a lot of people in Colombia uh, see him like a like part of the status quo disregarding that he's from the left so it's going to be it's going to be hard for him to you know to reach uh, 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 progressive uh, de- to, to take progressive decisions and 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 that maybe will put him in a similar situation as Gabriel Boric for example in 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 Chile or Pedro Castillo in Peru I mean they're gonna be uh, uh, Pedro Castillo I, be, I feel that is might be a, a little bit different I believe that he's being forced to to uh, uh, to to not be as progressive as he really wants to be but in the case of Boric I believe that he's just that I mean a liberal that that is trying to portray himself as a leftist and uh, and and I believe that Petro is have some similarities with Boric and and you uh, yesterday we were preparing a a piece about uh, the congratulatory messages that that Petro received uh, uh, yesterday uh, at night and and one of the most uh, excited, uh, uh, happy, I don't know how to say it, message that he received was from Gabriel Boric, the president of Chile. So anyway, I believe that, I believe that, that, that we have to pay attention to that because he's gonna, he's gonna uh, have to reach alliances and try, he's also gonna have to try to contain U.S. aggression that is always gonna be there and they, they and they are not going to allow too much uh, independence in Colombia. So let's see what happened in that sense. But now going to the Venezuelan side, uh, we are excited because uh, the level of uh, worsening of the bilateral relations between Colombia and Venezuela since 2018-2019 has been the worst in our Republican history. I mean, uh, we don't have diplomatic relations with Colombia. We don't have uh, consular relations with Colombia. We don't have um, uh, trade uh, relations with Colombia. Recently, in recent months, since January and February, uh, some easing of that trade relation has been happening, but it's not an open, uh, you know, trade relation that uh, like the one that we had before 2019. And, and, and I say 2019 because 2019 is the year when when the U.S. Uh, launched the crazy Guaido project. And immediately after the U.S. recognized Guaido uh, uh, as president when he self-appointed uh, himself uh, as interim president of Venezuela, breaking all the laws. Uh, uh, immediately after the U.S. recognized that, Colombia uh, went through and also did the same. And they immediately, a few weeks later, uh, launched this crazy uh, 
forced entry of humanitarian, so-called humanitarian aid to Venezuela, uh, towards Venezuela from the border in Cúcuta. And, and that was a big, uh, uh, you know, military security situation that we had to face. I'm talking about February 23rd, if I remember well, 2019. That day, uh, President Maduro decided to break economic and, and consular relations with Colombia. Uh, and it's absolutely understandable because they were basically becoming the beachhead for U.S. military approach towards uh, intervening in Venezuela. And, and that was the least that Maduro could do uh, under that, those circumstances. But, uh, you know, three years have already passed and the situation uh, uh, is every day worse and worse for Colombians living in Venezuela. And we have a lot of Colombians living in Venezuela, like five or six million are the calculations. And also for Venezuelans that has been emigrating in recent years uh, to Colombia. And, and some people talk about one and a half or two million Venezuelans living in Colombia right now. So, so without consulates, uh, that... Uh, uh, the life of the, that people, those people, is is a is a mess. It's a nightmare because uh, you need to, for example, yesterday during the elections, uh, one hundred twenty-nine thousand uh, Colombians residents from Venezuela are registered to vote. And uh, and and yesterday, and that happened also on May. 29 when the second round of the the first round of the election happened in Colombia uh, there were problems in the border with Venezuela uh, because the Colombian government uh, deployed uh, voting centers nearby the the closing the crossing uh, post the border uh, with with Venezuela to allegedly, allegedly to allow uh, Colombians living in Venezuela to vote. They don't say that it's very expensive to mobilize currently within Venezuela because we still have gas problems in the country. Uh, they don't talk about the security problems, the, how expensive it is to pay for a bus ticket or an air ticket to go from, uh, from, from the east of Venezuela or the south of Venezuela to Cúcuta. We're talking about several hundreds of dollars, and a lot of people don't have money to do that uh, or time to do that. So uh, in the first uh, round of the presidential elections in Colombia, only uh, I was reading in, in Colombia's newspapers some, somewhere around 3,000, uh, only 3,000 Colombians managed to vote in the six different voting centers that they deployed in the border with Venezuela uh, out of 129,000. And besides that, I mean, that says a lot about how hard for the Colombian living in Venezuela was to vote for uh, in the presidential elections. But also in the border, there were crashes with the Colombian police and the Venezuelan National Guard because uh, they do this crazy scene of 
closing the border, not only with Venezuela, but with all the countries uh, when, whenever they have presidential elections in Colombia. So uh, that creates some uncertainty because the people that are registered to vote and that might want to vote, they read that the border is closed and they don't know that there is an exception for them to allow them to, you know, cross the border, yes, to vote and go back to Venezuela. But uh, but that create, created this uh, kind of skirmishes, crashes between Colombians in the border wanting to vote, crashing with the Venezuelan National Guard and with the Colombian police, and that was a problem. So I, I mean, I, I just I just wanted to highlight that because that's part of the problems that we have with with Colombia, and and we hope that that that. Um, Petro uh, will change that. And he was one of the most active candidates that talked very clear uh, about resuming diplomatic and consular relations and trade relations with Venezuela. And we hope that, that he will uh, fast, because that's something that can be done very fast, uh, accomplish his promise, I mean, fulfill his promise. And, and that will be good for Venezuela and for Colombia. A lot of people uh, uh, in the north outside Venezuela, leftist friends, believe that that's uh, not good, that we should you know, keep the Colombians away because they are a threat. But the reality is that our two countries are too complementary, too uh, interlinked, uh, that is not a good thing to have the levels of uh, breaking relations that we have right now with Colombia. So we know and we are aware that uh, opening trade and commercial and, uh, and I mean, uh, diplomatic and consular relations uh, might be a threat, but it, it is also, uh, uh, it has also a positive side. So we hope it from Venezuela that that, you know, might help us. Uh, not only in Venezuela, but also uh, in the Colombian side. A lot of people in the border with Venezuela that depended on, relied on on the trade with Venezuela, on open relations with Venezuela, has been dreaming for, for several years or months uh, to the resumption of the diplomatic and trade relations. So let's see what happened. Yeah, I, I think you... Yeah, I think you you made some of the most important points, which is that right now the, the the relations between Venezuela and Colombia could not be worse. I mean, there are no formal diplomatic relations. Colombia has backed numerous terrorist attacks on Venezuela, including in May 2020, there was the botched invasion Operation Gideon that was not only backed by the U.S. government and overseen by the CIA, but it was also supported by the Colombian government. Jordan Goudreau, the U.S. Army Special Operations Officer who oversaw the invasion, he trained forces in northern Colombia, and then they crossed from Colombia into Venezuela to launch the attack. And there have been other cross-border attacks. So, I mean, going from a president, Ivan Duque, who is closely linked to drug cartels and death squads, who refuses to recognize the Venezuelan government, who launches cross-border terrorist attacks, to a new president who certainly is not going to be a friend of Venezuela. Petro has made a lot of ridiculous criticisms of Venezuela, but he is going to normalize relations. He's going to stop the terrorist attacks. I mean, it's very easy to see why the Venezuelan government is welcoming this. And I'll just briefly show here that President Maduro released a statement on Twitter 
congratulating Gustavo Petro and his vice president, Francia Marquez. I want to talk about her in a second because her politics are even better than Petro. She is a former domestic worker from the Afro-Colombian community. She's an activist from the social movements in Colombia. And, you know, Maduro said that the, the will of the Colombian people was heard. They went out to defend the path toward democracy and peace. And then here's a statement from the new foreign minister of Venezuela, Carlos Faria. And in this, you know, they say that uh, the Bolivarian government of Venezuela expresses its firm will of working and building re a renewed stage of integral relations for the well-being of the nation. So this is a, a clear sign that the Venezuelan government is welcoming this. They now are going to be able to normalize diplomatic relations. So I'm curious what you think this means for the left. You know, we talked about what it means for Venezuela. You are also a Chavista. You're active in building solidarity with other left-wing forces in Latin America. What does this mean for the left? Because I, when, when, when um, Gabriel Boric was elected, I um, wrote and I did videos arguing a particular analysis that some people in the U.S. were very angry about, although a lot of people in Latin America agreed with me, that the idea of the pink tide is very simplistic. The idea that all of these, you know, left-wing and progressive leaders are part of this common movement is in some ways not true. In some ways, I see that the Latin American left has been kind of divided into two different paths. And we see that there's the path of the ALBA, which is the revolutionary anti-imperialist path led by Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Bolivia. And then there's this new kind of social democratic progressive left, which we see with Alberto Fernandez in Argentina, who is really a kind of centrist or center left, with Gabriel Boric in Chile. And now we see with Petro in Colombia. Pedro Castillo is kind of a more complex figure. His party, Peru Libre, is more aligned, at least the leader of the party, is more aligned with the revolutionary forces, but then Pedro Castillo has been unable to govern and has kind of governed as more of a center-left figure. So I'm, I'm curious if you agree with that kind of division within the left and what you think this means. Is, is Petro's victory going to be a way to help to overcome that growing divide in the left or do you think it's going to make the divisions in the latin american left even worse that's a good point uh let me let me stop a little bit on on francia marquez before jumping to your question because what you, when you mentioned her I, re, I remember something that i was thinking yesterday before uh before going to sleep and it was that i i believe that that Francia Marquez actually made the make the difference uh, uh, that allowed Petro to win these elections. I mean, Petro won with, uh, at least under the fast counting process that happened yesterday with 3%. And I'm pretty sure that that 3% uh, was reflected by Colombian woman, uh, Colombian Afro-descendant people, poor Colombians that might not be sympathetic to Petro because they see him maybe as another politician from the status quo, but they supported um, Francia Marquez. So I believe that some 
part of the victory uh, relies uh, a lot, uh, in, 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 in Francia Marquez. Some people also commented that uh, it might be also the result of all the missteps of um, Rodolfo Hernández, the candidate of the opposition, uh, in, of the status quo, I mean, in Colombia. Uh, uh, but I believe that uh, Francia Marquez's own ways have a lot of a lot to do with uh, Petro's victory. Now jumping to the to the question of Latin America and the left and how I see Petro behaving within that environment. I'm I try to be optimistic most of the time and in this case I believe that as you said uh, uh, Petro is going to be uh, more inclined, more uh, aligned with Gabriel Boric and Alberto Fernandez. Uh, but uh, taking into consideration his background, his political background, before becoming a status quo politician of Colombia, uh, I still have hopes that maybe he will try to be like building bridges between that liberal left that we have in the region and the more progressive one represented, as you say, by Cuba, Nicaragua, Bolivia, and Venezuela. And actually also I, I see a lot of uh, sympathies between uh, the Bolivian president and, 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 and Petro. I believe that, I mean, I believe that, that there might be some some possibilities to try to uh, to avoid and split in that very complex uh, uh, pink tide that you were talking about, because some people call it pink tide uh, as a as an easy way to uh, to talk about the the left movement in in the region, and and that might lead uh, my that might I mean that possible scenario of alliances might push. Uh, the region to back towards real progressive, uh, not progressive, real unity uh, projects like UNASUR, as you mentioned, like CELAC, and 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 those projects were destroyed when the right wingers uh, took control of many countries in the region a few years ago, and they, uh, following U.S. Uh, orders, uh, decided to bombard. The, uh, uh, to 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 destroy UNASUR and CELAC. CELAC. UNASUR is almost destroyed, but a lot of people, at least here in Venezuela, has been talking about the real possibility of resuming the work of UNASUR. Uh, and CELAC has been active, not as active as during the Chavez time and Lula time and Fidel time, but has been alive. Actually, uh, President uh, Alberto Fernandez uh, in, uh, from Argentina in the failed U.S. summit of the Americas, made a nice speech, and he did it uh, 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 as a speaker for CELAC. I, I believe that his speech was more as a speaker of CELAC uh, than as president of Argentina. Uh, so, so, so CELAC has been there, and I believe that is the perfect. Uh, 
environment right now with Petro winning uh, uh, as president in Colombia and with the real possibility of Lula becoming president of Brazil uh, this October in the presidential elections uh, will be, uh, I mean, there, there will be a real chance for the region to have select VAR again with more strengths and And that's important because SELAC is almost the same thing as the OAS, but without U.S. and Canada. And that's very important because U.S. and Canada has been always uh, within uh, the the, inter the regional bodies just uh, uh, pushing their agendas of exploitation, uh, imperialism, and subjugation of our people. So, so... So I hope that 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 might be uh, uh, what happened in the coming years. Uh, as I told you, I'm optimistic, but I, I know what you're talking about about Petro. I mean, there's a lot of people in the especially in the left, thinking that Petro is going to be just another uh, Gabriel Boric, and that's uh, going to be very bad because Gabriel Boric is doing weird things, you know, <laughs> like going to to the, the summit of the Americas and to Canada to talk about human rights uh, and how bad uh, Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua are on human rights, while at the same time uh, having uh, the south of, uh, of Chile militarized uh, under a state of exception, uh, uh, almost on civil war with the Mapuche people that are already tired of having their line, uh, you know, taken away from them by corporations and private you know, businesses, and he's just repeating the same logic uh, implemented by all Chilean previous presidents towards the Mapuche people. So let's see what happened. Yeah, and, and I think you made a good point about the possibility that, you know, although certainly Petro has moderated his political message, he still might have the seeds of the, the revolutionary that, He used to be when he was young. I mean, I'll just mention for people who don't know, Jesus was was obliquely referencing the fact that Petro was a member of an armed socialist organization, M19. He was a guerrilla, but he later put down his arms and he moderated his politics. So, I mean, we'll see. There is a possibility that this could have been a long game, that he moderated his politics, but he secretly still has that revolutionary inside of him. Well, I do want to switch topics, uh, Jesus, and talk about sanctions and also Iran. But the, one more question about Colombia before we transition, and that was about Francia Marquez. So you mentioned that her being Petro's vice president in his, his left-wing coalition, which is called the Pacto Histórico, which is a very broad coalition of two dozen left-wing parties, ranging from liberals and social democrats to the communist parties. So there's a very, very wide tent there. And It's going to be very difficult for them to, to come to a common consensus on governing. It's easy to unify the left against the right, but actually governing is going to be another question. So anyway, that aside, I agree with you that him choosing Francia Marquez was a, an important factor in his victory. She represents the Afro-Colombian community. She's an activist. She's not, she's not a politician like Petro. She comes from the social movements. And... Also, I would say that if you look at the statements she's made about Venezuela and other countries in the region, she hasn't engaged in the same kind of red baiting that that Petro is. I mean, Petro has that Petro has, for instance, 
He's attacked Venezuela and Nicaragua, calling them supposed dictatorships, which is ridiculous. She hasn't engaged in the same rhetoric. And I think, you know, honestly, she's pretty down with a more revolutionary left-wing project, something like, you know, Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution. So it's going to be interesting to see how those two forces are working in the same government. Petro, who represents the more center-left political class that is that compromises in a lot of things, and Francia Marquez, who represents the social movements who are more interested in radical change. I'm just curious what you think about her possibility as vice president. And my concern is that she could end up like Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner in Argentina, who made this coalition with Alberto Fernandez and basically a lot of people assumed that it was going to be a power sharing agreement, that Alberto Fernandez would be like co-president and that Cristina would be co-president. But actually, she's kind of been given very few, very few um, powers, very few responsibilities. And in fact, her, the, the people representative of her Kirchnerist movement, loyal to her, resigned from Fernandez's cabinet. So there's been this fight going on. I'm curious if you think that something similar could happen in Colombia, or if you think that Francia could actually have a very positive influence in the government. It's complicated. And what you said about Argentina is pretty uh, pertinent because it's true. I mean, but I believe that in Argentina it's worse. I mean, Fernandez won the presidency because of Cristina Fernandez. Uh, and uh, because the, 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 the Macri's government was like low, fair, and... Uh, you know, politically persecuting uh, uh, Christina and, and the best things that they uh, came out with was like, you know, choosing another uh, politician uh, to run for president and having her as vice president formula. Uh, but she had more power, actually, than 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 Francia Marquez in Colombia. Uh, uh, also, I believe that the figure of vice president, I believe not only, not, not only in Colombia, everywhere, the figure of vice president is uh, like decorative, it's not so uh, relevant, so important, but uh, uh, I still believe that Francia Marquez, that everything's going to depend on how... Um, this connection between Francia Marquez and Gustavo Petro works. Uh, I, I, I'm optimistic. I, I, I want to think that Francia Marquez will be able to uh, influence uh, Petro uh, in the decision-making process, but in reality, she doesn't have, as vice president, that big power to, you know, take decisions. So, so it's going to be something that Francia Marquez is going to have to work hard to build like uh, uh, like like building this influence uh, towards uh, Petro in order to push him a little bit to the left but as I told you it's gonna be like it's, it's like uh, un juego de dados we say in, in Spanish I don't know how to translate that in into English yeah um, so I do want to transition now and talk about sanctions you, Jesus, you're Venezuelan, you live in Venezuela, you have experienced the difficulties of the U.S. blockade and economic warfare. Um, the last time I, I interviewed you and had a discussion with you was, um, I think it was in 2019 or 2020, it was in Caracas, and it was 
at a time of very bad inflation. I mean, the inflation was in the triple digits and even higher. Now, actually, what's interesting is Venezuela has lower inflation than many countries in Latin America, including Argentina. So the government has been able to rein in the inflation, which is one of the biggest problems, which you can talk about, I mean, what that was caused by. It's a complicated story, but, you know, the U.S. sanctions, the attacks on the currency, these shady groups based in the U.S., like Dollar Today, that were, that were pushing up the, the black market exchange rate and all the private corporations in Venezuela were refusing to use the government inflation rate, which just kept pushing it up. So that's, that's a whole complicated thing. But the Maduro government has been able to put inflation under relative control. And now we've even seen that with the Western economic war on Russia and the Western, the U.S. and European boycott of Russian energy, that Washington basically went to, to Caracas and the Biden administration begged Venezuela for help with oil to make up for the lack of Russian oil exports. And we've seen that in return, the U.S. government has lifted a few sanctions. Of course, the vast majority of the sanctions remain. The blockade remains. But I'm curious what you think about the government's handling, the Venezuelan government's handling of the economic crisis. And if you think that the U.S. lifting a few sanctions and potentially allowing Venezuela to export oil could mean that, you know, the Venezuelan economy is, is really on the path toward recovery. Yes, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I believe that uh, one of the important things, I mean, that I have to start saying that, that especially to our friends, leftist friends uh, around the world, that Venezuela has been selling oil to the U.S. since, 2000, uh, since 19. 18 and 1920, something like that. Actually, Venezuelan oil industry was built by the U.S. because they wanted our, our oil. That's how it works in most of the countries that are all producing countries, I mean. Uh, so um, I'm saying this because a lot of friends of us in the left, uh, whenever we talk about resuming selling oil to the U.S., they say, no, you don't have to do that. You I mean, but the reality is that 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 Venezuelan economy depends on the consumption of oil in the U.S., in China, in different countries. And if we don't sell oil, uh, our economy uh, cries as it has been crying since 2016, 17, when the U.S. sanctions began to be felt hard in Venezuela, and especially since 2019, when President Trump like, took the most radical sanction steps towards the country. So uh, I believe that it's important to say that because uh, selling oil to the U.S. doesn't mean, uh, or to Europe, doesn't mean that we are becoming a, a, a neoliberal country or a capitalist country or something like that. Uh, uh, and that also takes me to the to the your comments about uh, Venezuelan economic recovery in recent months, especially since 2018 when when President Maduro took the decision of uh, uh, releasing some of the economic uh, 
constraints that the government had on certain aspects of Venezuelan economy. And, and that's also that have created also another problem uh, with some leftists out there that says that Maduro is uh, becoming uh, a neoliberal president and they don't understand that that we are doing that after several years trying to you know do a different economic approach that was not helping us that was getting worse and worse uh, with the coming of the sanctions. So in 2018, Maduro didn't have any other choice that find ways to liberalize the economy and to detach from previous economic advisors. And I was talking about that with you, Ben, before going live. And, and I really believe that uh, Maduro and before him, Chavez was following the advice of certain Venezuelan economists uh, that uh, were not taking us to the right place, that they were talking about, that uh, they were saying that inflation was something imaginary, something that comes out of the imagination. And they were saying that price controls over, the, you know, the price of products uh, was something good to do and that salary increases uh, were something uh, that we need to do. And we went like, I don't know, like like seven, eight years doing that. And the economy was getting worse and worse until the until the sanctions came and the economy exploded so 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 i i i'm happy that president maduro took the decision of detaching from those advisors that are several economies that are still out there right now criticizing the government more and aligning with the communist party of venezuela saying that that maduro is a neoliberal president or something like that without taking into consideration the 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 you know the material conditions that force him to take decisions that he still take uh, if, I, I have some friends some members of our team in orinoco tribune that says that they don't like maduro going abroad and and calling for investments for venezuela that that sounds too much like too neoliberal for them but 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 something that has to be understood as part of a a, a very uh, dramatic economic situation that we are still living some numbers has been getting better as you say like inflation like uh, um, uh, gdp uh, growth uh, but also that gdp growth have to be analyzed very in uh, in, I mean, in depth, because just uh, yes, uh, last year the economy of Venezuela grew, I believe, like four or five percent. But that happened after like seven or eight years of economic uh, GDP decrease, and in those seven or eight years, the economy, the GDP of Venezuela, shrank by seventy-five percent. That's a lot. I mean, uh, Venezuelan economy uh, in 2021 was only 25% of what it was in 2013. So you can imagine how an economy uh, cries under those circumstances. And, and within that economy, uh, the people 
we, the Venezuelans that live here and have to deal with all the craziness that uh, develops under those circumstances, as you say, inflation, uh, uh, deterioration of public services, mass migration that have a terrible effect in the life of a country. Uh, a lot of people talk about migration, but but we in Venezuela have noticed how this mass southern migration affects the country because uh, usually the most prepared people are the ones that go abroad and, and decide to leave uh, to migrate to emigrate uh, and 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 that have an effect on the quality of services the quality of education the quality of government policies a lot of things in in a country can be affected if uh, uh, suddenly one or two million of, of the population in the case of Venezuela one or two million is like Like, like like five or seven percent of the population goes suddenly abroad so so yeah so, we call so, that so brain conflict. drain we call that brain drain and and we should keep in mind that those people leaving they're disproportionate they're not all but they're disproportionately people who are educated you know have backgrounds in medicine and engineering and these technical disciplines and if you lose those people it's much harder to have a functioning society Yes. So, so any I, I, what, 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 what I, I mentioned that because uh, I know that there's a lot of people that criticize uh, in the left. I mean, that criticize uh, Maduro's decisions. But I, I believe that most of the people in Venezuela, Chavistas or Norchavista, are realizing that uh, the decision that Maduro took in 2018, where he began to lift the controls on the exchange rate, lift this price controls over products uh, that, that affect us a lot because that created scarcity issue that that was never seen and that was used widely by the mainstream media to attack Venezuela as a failed socialist, uh, you know, uh, case uh, and, and uh, start apply monetary discipline in order to try to control the amount of, of money circulating in the economy that put pressure on the inflation when he decided to uh, allow the use of dollars uh, in Venezuela to deal with the scarcity of bolivars i mean we had a lot of problems in to, between 2015 and 2017 and 18 and 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 all of the sudden with uh, a different economic approach maduro has been able to to deal with those things but we are not in heaven yet that's what i'm trying to say but yes The U.S. comes here uh, when they realize that the their sanction policy, the crazy sanction policy towards Russia, uh, is backfiring. Is having this boomerang effect that everyone is uh, feeling and living all over the world, and they come here uh, pidiendo cacao, as we say in Spanish, like begging us for oil. And, and 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 that shows that uh, how crazy the U.S. foreign policy is and how erratic it is and how uh, uh, lost uh, the U.S. nomenclatura in Washington uh, works. So, so we are happy because they came here. Some people in the left might not be, might not agree with us, but we are happy because that shows that that we were right, that shows that our resistance was uh, something and, and that after resisting several years, U.S. aggressions, the gringos came here 
con el rabo entre las patas, as we say, the, the Latino friend will, will understand that, uh, but uh, begging for oil. So, so, so that's something. But it, it's important to highlight what you say about not, not Venezuela, not, uh, I mean, uh, there's a lot of media coverage about U.S. lifting sanctions and, 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 and easing sanctions towards Venezuela, but the reality is that until now, the only three real changes that I have noticed, and I try to follow that because that's part of the work that we do on the Renoco Tribune, uh, is that they uh, allowed European corporations to, uh, to, to resume operations Uh, and and uh, and to Venezuela already have arrived uh, some tankers from Europe. Uh, we had any and Repsol that operate in Venezuela for several years, and they were affected by U.S. sanctions. So what the U.S. did was, or fact did was, uh, to lift part of the sanctions towards those European companies to allow them to to take Venezuelan oil to Europe. And that have a lot of sense because Europe is one of the regions also affected by their own crazy uh, sanction policy towards Russia. Uh, and the other one, and the other one was uh, and taking uh, Malpica, Freddy or Felix Malpica, he's the cousin of the, uh, the wife of President Maduro, Siria Flores, And he was put in the list of sanctioned individuals. And all of the sudden, last week, uh, uh, Felix Malpica, I believe that is his name, he was taken off that list. And that, that was big news in Venezuela last week because especially uh, through the right-wingers that they were saying, oh, look, they took Malpica out of the list. And, but I don't know what real implications that scene have in real life but anyway i mean those are the only two uh, measures that i have noticed uh, that i remember right now uh, the ofac has been taken to real to really uh, relieve some of the sanctions a lot of people are saying that um, the the chevron is going to have sim a similar the measure taken soon but up to now Uh, Chevron is not exporting oil to, <coughs> sorry, to, to the U.S. So, so maybe in the coming days, there's a, a lot of uh, opacity towards those decisions, especially because they are taken by some bureaucrats in Washington, um, but also because mainstream media tries to, to, to advertise and play with those news to push right-wingers, to push the Biden government to don't do anything, or in the contrary. So, so you notice that there is a lot of, um, you know, game playing with the uh, lifting of sanctions towards Venezuela thing. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it has been a little overstated, although I think it's part of a trend and And the U.S. is lifting a few, although they're probably going to end up lifting more because they want to make up for the, the lack of Russian oil exports. And Russia had actually been one of the top exporters of oil to the United States and especially to Europe until this brutal economic war. One second. I, I had you muted because of the background noise. Go ahead. And I just wanted to add that Russia took part of the share of Venezuelan exports to the U.S. It's a crazy move. 
uh, because I mean the Russians and we don't see it bad. It's a natural scene in, in oil market. The Russians took part of the of the share of the Venezuelan oil that was not being sent to the U.S. because of the sanctions that they imposed on us, and now because they are imposing sanctions on Russia, they come here because they need the oil. But the problem also is that there are a lot of uh, oil Russian companies producing oil in Venezuela. So at the end of the day, that's going to be a big mess. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's heavy is here. <laughs> so at the end of the day, they're gonna have they're gonna be helping the the Russians uh, if they buy Venezuelan oil. Uh, of course, they are not gonna buy it from the Russian companies that are operating here. But at the end of the day, they're helping Venezuelan oil operation overall. Yeah, well, th this is what's funny about all of the, these U.S. sanctions and this economic war being waged by Washington is that they often do end up hurting the people in these countries, but strengthening the governments of these countries. And we see this very clearly in, in Russia. I mean, at least at first, the sanctions hurt the Russian people, although now the their currency is significantly stronger than it was even before the sanctions. And now the Russian government is making more money on its energy exports because prices of energy commodities have skyrocketed, although that's led to inflation that's hurt people around the world. So anyway, whatever, that's a that's a whole other long um, story. And I, you know, we'll definitely talk about that in other uh, story, every, other coverage here at Multipolarista. But I know that um, Jesus does not have a lot of time. So um, I just wanted to say on the subject of of the economy before moving to Iran, where we're going to end our discussion. I wanted to say that from what I've heard from speaking with Venezuelans and reading the Venezuelan press, that I think what's also happening is that Maduro is getting a lot of economic advice from China and and the the leftist critics of Maduro and the Venezuelan government who claim that they're becoming neoliberal is ridiculous. I mean, the government is still going to maintain control of the commanding heights of the economy, the oil sector, the significant, you know, um, infrastructure, telecommunications and all of that transportation. But they do need to ease the brutal economic blockade on them. And the inflation has really destroyed a lot of wage increases. And if you're a country like Venezuela that doesn't have a global reserve currency like the dollar, and if your currency is not backed by oil because you can't export your oil because of the US blockade or by other hard currency, then it leads to this massive inflation. So you constantly increase the wages for workers, which is a great thing, of course, we want workers to have higher wages, but then the inflation eats away at those that, those wage increases. So it's this constant battle. And that was exactly what happened in Venezuela, where the government would constantly raise the wage and then inflation would destroy those wage increases. It was a very difficult situation. And of course, I mean, the majority of these difficulties were caused by the illegal sanctions and blockade. But I mean, apparently China has had a lot of economic advisors helping to to get over that those problems and now try to develop the economy with a model that still maintains state leadership in the economy, but also allowing certain sectors to to invite foreign investment. And a lot of that foreign investment is not from, you know, the imperialist West. It's from Iran and Russia and China. And specifically, I want to talk about Iran here, um, Jesus. President Maduro just took a historic trip to Iran this June. He also took a trip to Algeria and to Turkey, which is interesting, a, a NATO member, although Turkey constantly plays 
the West against China and Russia. They're pl Turkey's playing everyone against everyone at all times. But in Algeria, Maduro um, announced that they were working together to support Palestinians and support the people of the Western Sahara. And then he also took an historic trip to Tehran and signed a 20-year cooperation agreement between Venezuela and Iran. And Maduro announced that, that this will involve Iranian technological support for the Venezuelan oil sector and other Venezuelan technology. It, in, it includes technology transfers. It also includes medical support and it includes economic agreements. So I'm wondering if you can talk about what this 20 year agreement between Iran and Venezuela could mean. This comes after Iran has sent many oil tankers to Venezuela full of lighter crude and oil diluents, which is what Venezuela needs in order to process the very heavy crude that Venezuela has. Because you, you can't just take the crude out of the ground and use it. You have to process it. And the U.S. blockade has made it very hard for Venezuela to get lighter crude and diluents. And furthermore, we know that, that Iran has even opened supermarkets in Venezuela. Um, I think it's called Megasis. So maybe you can talk about the growing economic partnership between Venezuela and Iran and what you think about this 20-year historic agreement. Yes, uh, uh, what you're saying is true. I mean, the relationship between uh, Iran and Venezuela has been in strengthening a lot in recent years, especially during the, 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 the sanction, these sanction times from 2017 until today. And in one of the areas where the Iranians has been very most active, uh, if you ask me, in my opinion, is the, the, the oil industry. And, uh, and they has been key to us, uh, uh, especially since 2019, when we started to, to suffer uh, gas scarcity all over the country. Uh, 2020, actually, when the when the pandemic began, and and um, and the in the Iranians were the ones that that sends uh, uh, tankers, oil tankers, full of gasoline at the beginning, because we didn't have enough gasoline. Uh, Maduro said recently during the trip to Iran uh, that that. The oil refineries, gasoline refineries in Venezuela were shut down, were not working, and that created a big problem. I mean, ha not having gas in a country uh, is uh, or diesel is terrible, not only for the people, but for the economy. So uh, the Iranians were the first that start sending uh, uh, oil tankers to Venezuela with gasoline, disregarding the fact that the U.S. was threatening on attacking those tankers and actually at some point they seize they seize like two or, or three of these tankers uh, uh but most of the tankers uh with gasoline uh, finally arrived to venezuela and the us uh, has not uh, uh seized more tankers uh lately uh, but with that uh, help uh, also the uh, the Iranian people, the Iranian government sent uh, specialists, technical teams to uh, evaluate the status of our refining uh, um, 
facilities. And I have to say that uh, that those refineries were US made, all the parts, all the technology, everything was built by the US because we were a colony of the US before Chavez came to power, like most of the countries in the region and 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 like most uh, oil producing countries so 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 when the us start applying sanctions to venezuela uh, of course the refineries were uh resent because we were not receiving uh, enough uh, we were not receiving the parts needed to uh, uh to repair to improve to maintain uh, all the refining facilities so the, the the Iranians came here and they are still working trying to change the 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 platform the technological infrastructure for uh Venezuelan uh petrochemical you know uh Uh, facilities and they and and, and that's going to be very no no going to be that is very important uh, because uh, we might get rid of that dependency from Iranian oil another thing that maduro say uh when he was in iran and, and 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 it has not received too much media attention Uh, but we published it in Orinoco Tribune a few days ago is that maduro announced that uh, general soleimani the Soleimani that was killed by the U.S. in a drone attack in Iraq like two years ago, three years ago. Uh, immediately after the electrical blackout that we suffered in 2019, that was a heavy national uh, uh, blackout that affected Venezuela for several days and that the government say that it was sabotage. Uh, uh, Maduro, uh, during his trip to Iran, says that uh, General Soleimani and a group of Iranians came two or three days later after the the, the blackout to help Venezuela with the with the blackout, and and that he stayed in Venezuela for like one or two days, and immediately after he went back to Iran, uh, he sent uh, a group of uh, experts uh, to help Venezuela deal with the electrical crisis. I mean, those are the things that that happens, and you only know a few years later when the when the authorities decide that it's time to release that information. But that was something important because it talks about the level of relationships and and, and brotherhood between Venezuela and Iran. And one have to say, and I'm putting it right now as Iranian helping us, but also at some point in 2009, President Chavez sent a lot of oil uh, uh, to to Iran because they were suffering gasoline, I believe, to Iran because we, they were suffering some problems with gasoline production in Iran. And, and we know in Venezuela that Iranians also uh, appreciate and value uh, that help that Venezuela provided then to Iran. So we have a very uh, uh, nice and strong relationship that of course is being uh, bombarded everywhere by mainstream media by Zionist groups by US intelligence by right wingers all, all over the world and recently we have this case of a uh, of uh, an airplane a 747 that is uh, grounded in Argentina because they say that it was an Iranian plane and that a big crew of Iranians were in the 
a, a, a big group of Iranians were part of the crew. Uh, and, and, and that's part of the psychological smearing campaign that they always launch whenever the levels of relations between Iran and Venezuela uh, uh, is growing. So they initiate these campaigns uh, against Venezuela and Iran. And, and that's uh, something that is still happening, that situation with uh, that uh, cargo airplane from Venezuela. Uh, company Emtrasur, which is a subsidiary of Conviasa. And that created a lot of headlines in the region and still is creating a lot of headlines in the region because uh, some judges in Argentina went into the issue and, and they seized not only the plane, but, but also the, the crew and they took their passports. So I don't know, uh, I haven't read lately what is the latest status of the of the incident but it's something happening right now so it says a lot about the, the relationship between iran and venezuela and 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 and, and president maduro and and uh, i forgot the name of the of the current president of of iran but Raisi. The president, Raisi. Uh -huh, Raisi, uh, uh, mm, signed this strategic uh, 20 years uh, strategic alliance, which I believe is uh, something that comes very naturally. I mean, uh, it's something that is absolutely happening because of we have a very uh, strong levels of relations right now with Iran. <coughs> and we are aiming at strengthening that relation because it's good for Venezuela. To have that relation and also during the visit of president maduro to iran the iranians delivered a tanker an oil tanker uh, part of a deal that was signed several years ago with venezuela uh, when venezuela bought uh, four tankers from iran the first one was delivered uh, like two or three years ago and this is the second one and and, and we're talking about massive oil tankers being built in 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 iran and that shows also the might of the iranian economy that besides the in despite of being uh, also sanctioned as crazy for several decades already they has been able to to, to to have this strong economy capable of building that kind of chips. So uh, I believe that the level of relationship is uh, getting stronger. Tourism was another issue that was discussed during Maduro's trip. And we are gonna open, <coughs> sorry, we're gonna open this. Um, actually, uh, the first flight of, between, uh, of Conviasa between Tehran and Caracas was scheduled for for this Saturday, so I believe that uh, it already happened. But uh, but we are, you know, the level of I mean, Venezuela opened with Conviasa this weekly flight from Caracas to Tehran, and and that's also part of the attacks that you now see that I was mentioning with this uh, seven forty seven plane uh, being grounded in Iran because that is the campaign that they usually launch because they say that in these planes are gonna come terrorists from Iran and they create this CIA, Mossad uh, stories with a lot of, you know, uh, uh, movie, Hollywood kind of information that you immediately realize that is bullshit. But anyway, they keep saying that and they keep, you know, promoting those stories here and there trying to smear uh, Venezuela and Iran, but that's not gonna happen. 
the relationship uh, uh, of Venezuela and Iran is getting stronger. Tourism is one of of those, uh, I mean, elements that uh, are part of the discussions, but I'm sure that security and defense is another one, but governments do usually do, do not uh, uh, talk too much about those things for obvious reasons. But uh, that's also part of the of the of the you know uh, uh, relationship between Venezuela and Iran, and uh, going back to tourism, a group of Venez of Iranian uh, tool operators were coming to Venezuela. I mean, local news in Venezuela announced that a few days ago. So a group of tour operators from Iran are coming to Venezuela to evaluate the the, the possibilities of you know promoting uh, you know. Uh, tourist packages between the two countries. So, so, and Venezuela is looking for that. Venezuela is in desperate need of income. Uh, and besides uh, uh, a possible resumption of oil operations, um, Venezuela needs to diversify this, its economy that was stuck in oil for several decades, not because we wanted that, but because the U.S., uh, wanted us to be like that and and and, and that's something that a lot of people blame the governments of different countries because of the economic model that they have but no one talks about how the u.s shape the economic world order after second world war in order to have the economic world order that they wanted and that's what we are seeing right now And that's something that we are right now seeing that is cracking and that is falling apart. And I wish that that moment when the U.S. is not the hegemon that, that control everything in the world uh, comes to life. And I believe that's also part of your dream. And that's why you call your website Multipolarista, right, man? <laughs> that's exactly right. And this is the perfect segue, Jesus. I know... It's already been an hour. I know you have to go, so you don't have a lot of time. So I have one final question, and you perfectly segued it. I wanted to talk about Venezuela's role in this emerging multipolar world. Venezuela's relationship with Iran is, I think, very much part of it. And, you know, I, I wrote an article at Multipolarista, multipolarista.com, about the 20-year cooperation plan signed between Venezuela and Iran. You can see President Maduro here with President Raisi of Iran. But I also mentioned in this article another article that I had written about Nicaragua signing a series of historic agreements with Iran. You know, Nicaragua, it's a much smaller country, only 6.5 million people. So this didn't get as much coverage as Venezuela's agreement. But it, it shows that there is this growing partnership between these countries in the global south. Iran and China in 2021 signed a 25-year cooperation plan estimated at $400 billion, $400 billion. So we're seeing the emergence of this axis of resistance, right? Not, not only in West Asia with, with the Lebanese resistance and Palestine and Syria and Iraq and Iran, but also that is kind of merging with the Latin American axis of resistance of Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Bolivia. They're partnering with China and Russia. They're part of the this group at the UN called Group of Friends in Defense of the UN Charter. We saw in 2019, Venezuela hosted the, the non-aligned movement, Movimiento de los Países No Alineados, that was held in Caracas in 2019 at the peak 
of the U.S. coup attempt. So Venezuela, in addition to being a leader of the left, it has become this kind of new voice of a global south cooperation movement, advocating regional integration in Latin America, but also south-south integration and south-south cooperation. So I'm wondering if we can just conclude with what your thoughts are about Venezuela's role in trying to build this new multipolar world when, when Maduro gave a speech for the People's Summit of the America, or the People's Summit for Democracy in protest of the U.S. government-controlled summit, which was a complete disaster that the presidents of eight countries in the region did not attend. In that speech that Maduro gave to the People's Summit for Democracy, he said that we are building a new multipolar world. So I'm wondering what you think about Venezuela's role in, in this process of not only resisting imperialism, that's one thing, but also trying to build a new political and economic architecture against imperialism. That's true. That's true. Venezuela, Venezuela has been, since Chavez time, trying to build this uh, multipolar new war order. And, and I believe that we have been successful uh, doing that because, uh, especially because of Chavez. Chavez was very insistent on this multipolar world and, and and Maduro as his minister for foreign affairs for several years was is and now as president is just replicating what uh, you know the teachings of of Chavez and, and and he believes in that of course and and and, and you can see that uh, everywhere but especially in these times current times with all the economic disaster that has been clearly seen during pandemic times in the West, in the US and Europe, uh, with all this disruption in, in production chains all over the world that they right now are blaming on China because China, China closed Shanghai for two or three weeks. Uh, but everyone knows that it, that's not the cause of the problem because the problem happened uh, a, a lot of months uh, before that, uh, and and we now see the craziness, inflation in the U.S. and the effect that that has in 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 the U.S. Uh, in the in the in the interest rates that has been raised by the Federal Reserve in the U.S. affecting uh, war markets. Ev I mean, uh, markets uh, everywhere. Uh, uh, I mean, that's a sign that something bad is happening in the uh, economic system designed and created and run by the U.S. Uh, after the Second World War. And that system is cracking, it's falling apart for several years already, but we, ha we now are witnessing uh, the whole thing uh, uh, happening in front of our, our eyes, and 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 I believe that uh, what you are talking about, Venezuela strengthening relations with Iran, but also Iran signing strategic alliances with China, but also China having strategic alliances with Russia. And and, and a few days ago, there was this phone call between Xi Jinping and President Putin, uh, where Xi Jinping reiterated his commitment with Russia. Uh, 
I mean, those are scenes that uh, happen and sometimes are not covered by mainstream media because they don't reflect their imperialist narrative. But those scenes are happening and countries are noticing that the U.S. economy is about to crack and that they need to detach from the uh, uh, dollar uh, war system that was created by the Bretton Woods Institution in, in 40 in 47 and 48. Uh, I mean, those things are happening and we are witnessing and I'm happy and honored that Venezuela is one of those countries that has been promoting uh, the, you know, the emergence of this new approach towards uh, international relations with a multipolar approach. Uh, and, and, and just to mention something that happened just a few days ago, I mean, last this weekend in, in, in St. Petersburg, Russia, there was this uh, International Economic Forum, the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, where Venezuela had a lot of uh, uh, economic experts that met with Russian experts and Chinese experts uh, uh, to talk about ways to uh, facilitate payments between our countries without the using of dollar. Uh, Venezuela announced during those meetings in St. Petersburg that uh, the mere payment system that is used in Russia, especially uh, after the 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 Mastercard and and, and Visa uh, went out of the Russian market because of U.S. sanctions, uh, uh, is going to be used in Venezuela. I mean, Russians that comes. Uh, to Venezuela for tourist reasons are going to be able to use their mere cards uh, in order to pay for anything that they want to pay here in Venezuela and they won't have to need to have like uh, to use their uh, cash and, and, and those are the things that are happening right now we have a lot of technology that can be used to uh, in, in, in this sense to try to build alternative of of that to the dollar and that's going to be very important i mean i believe that the countries that detach from the dollar faster are the countries that are going to survive uh, the imminent economic crisis that is going to come after the whole dollar economic uh, model collapse so i'm happy because venezuela is you know doing something to 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 promote and to uh, encourage this new world order. And that is part of the Chavista legacy. And I'm happy because of that. Yeah, very well said. And, and I have to say that Hugo Chavez was so prescient when it came to this. This yes. is an article, uh, Chavez, the great integrationist and promoter of a multipolar world. It points out that in 1998, a year before he w became president, winning a f you know free and fair democratic election, although you know the fact that he won elections is ignored by the Western media, which calls him a so-called dictator. But uh, Chavez said in 1998, quote, "The world of the 21st century that is already on the horizon, it will not be bipolar or unipolar." Thank God it will be multipolar. He said that in 1998. Just imagine the prescience of being able yes. to see more than 20 years before. I mean, because it's only now that we're finally seeing the emergence of this multipolar world that Chavez helped give birth to. And I think that, yeah, you're right, that 
you know, Venezuela it plays such a key role in that in that historic process. And that's why, despite the difficulties that the Venezuelan people have suffered in the past few years, I think those difficulties will be seen as the birth pangs of a new world order. That's a reference to Condoleezza Rice, the neoconservative war hawk, war criminal in the U.S. government, who referred to the U.S. imperialist wars in West Asia as the so-called birth pangs of the new Middle East. Well, the U.S. economic war on Venezuela and much of the world is the birth pangs of this new multipolar world. So I want to thank you, Jesus Rodriguez Espinosa, a great Venezuelan journalist, for joining us. I would highly recommend that everyone check out his website. It's called the Orinoco Tribune. He is the editor. He's very prolific. You can find that at orinocotribune.com. And Jesus, people who want to support Orinoco Tribune, can you tell them how they can support your work? Yes, yes. First of all, I, I, I before going there, I, I want to say everyone that I'm also a big fan of your work, man. <laughs> Thank you. And you are a reference in the region for many, you know, real leftist people. So please keep doing your, the work that you are doing because it's very important. It's very important. And, and especially coming from you that are a cadre, that are a person that is very uh, well politically trained and, and and that's very important because we when you don't have that training uh, a lot of things might happen i mean you can go sideways you know so uh, i just i just want to highlight that because uh, it's absolutely true you have a big fan here not only uh, with me but with all the orinoco tribune team so thank that you Jesus, that means you. a lot uh, so uh, going back to 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 the question that I already forgot. I mean, I now now I remember. <laughs> Go to Orinoco Tribune and 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 you can press the Patreon button. You can press the PayPal donation button. Right now, we sign an alliance with 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 uh, the Alliance for Global Justice, by the way, and and they and we are like what they call uh, tax. Uh, except uh, I don't remember what is the name of the the, the whole scene, but we, we they are they are our fiscal sponsors. So anyone that wants to uh, make a donation to Orinoco Tribune uh, is going to have the the tax deductions uh, that uh, happen when you donate to nonprofit in the U.S. So that's gonna we expect that that might help us, you know, uh, improve the level of of economic uh, resources that we need, and, and we really need that. And you also know that, Ben, because you also work in an independent project, and, and we don't rely on advertisement. We don't rely in government uh, support. So we only rely in the in the donations that we receive from 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 our readers, and 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 we usually are like up to the neck. Uh, uh, not uh, without resources, trying to do the best that we can do with uh, the, with uh, not too many resources. So thank you for the invitation, Ben, and thank you for reminding me about the donation scene because I always forgot to talk about those things, <laughs> but those things are important because one has to eat. <laughs> exactly, and, yeah. And uh, I, so I guess I'll take this opportunity too as, to say as well, you should go to patreon.com slash Oronoco Tribune and you should support 
Jesus's work and his team. And you could also consider going to patreon.com slash multipolarista and supporting my work. Um, and it's always a pleasure being joined by Jesus and other friends and comrades in Latin America doing great independent journalistic work. So this video will be available on YouTube and on Rockfin and on Rumble and on Odyssey. I have it backed up in all of those other video platforms in case YouTube ever, you know, censors my channel. So this video will be available. And of course, there will be a podcast available. So thanks, Jesus. And thanks to everyone Thank else. You, and we'll see you next Keep time. Keep your good work. Un abrazo. Igualmente.